right. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Trash Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Recycle Michael, here today with Dieter Eccles from Cascadia Consulting Group. Hi. I'm excited to hey, be here. Dieter. Let's talk trash. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to introduce our guest, Dieter Eccles has more than 15 years of sustainable materials management experience at Cascadia Consulting Group. Dieter has planned, designed, implemented, evaluated, and managed waste characterization studies coast-to-coast for both public and private sector clients, including the states of California, Connecticut, Georgia, and Illinois, cities of Chicago, Honolulu, Houston, New York, Philadelphia, Seattle, LA, Portland, San Diego, and Vancouver, BC, uh, as well as institutional clients, including the U.S. Pentagon, uh, Army Corps of Engineers, the Pacific Northwest National Lab, and a range of private sector haulers. Peter has called Seattle home for more than 25 years and loves to talk trash. That pretty so, much sums uh, it up. Are we done now? That's it. That's not it. No, we have a lot more trash talk to do. Because, um, man, it sounds like you have the most intimate uh, relationship with trash out of anyone we've talked to, <laughs> most likely based on that bio. We, we touch each other a lot. Yeah. 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 You and trash. Right. Me and trash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We um, have had the fortune here at uh, Wastebusters to work with Cascadia Consulting Group a couple times on, on some of these waste characterization studies. But, uh, you know, let's start off with talking about what waste characterization is. It might be a term that's not familiar to some of our listeners. Yeah, that's a it's a great question. So um, it's what I do all the time. But, my, you know, in more detail, what it is, is we often get approached by folks who want to develop, um, you know, better better recycling programs or better compost programs, better sustainable materials management programs. And sort of the first step to that is they, they really want to figure out what's still in their trash. What are they still throwing away that they're wasting that they could, uh, you know, do a better job about not wasting? So, so waste characterization study is just that. It's us digging through the trash to see what's there. Um, and by dig, I'm, I'm literally dig. We climb into dumpsters. We grab scoops of garbage out of the back of collections trucks. We pick up um, carts from the curbside at people's houses, or you know, um, and then we dump that material out on a table and we hand sort it into a whole bunch of different material categories. And the the categories we use are dependent on um, you know the client and their program interests and. Um, how much they want to pay for the project and, and, you know, a bunch of other variables, but oftentimes it's anywhere from a, a really simple sort of two material types, acceptable, not acceptable, all the way up to um, our New York City project, which when you delved all the way down into it, had 517 different material types. So hand sort it out and all those different material categories, weigh it, create a report at the end of it. And then we, you know, the client can use that information to figure out what to do different and what to do better. Right. So you're not necessarily sorting all the trash that one of these customers of yours uh, is generating. You're taking samples that are statistically significant when you do that sorting and so that you can kind of make a, a qualified estimate as to the types of materials that are going to waste, right? Yeah, absolutely right. So again, it, it depends on the size of the client and what the project is. But yeah, typically we're we're sampling the waste. You're exactly right. So for for you know for a for a small business, it might be all of the waste they generate for a day or a week. Uh, for somebody like the state of California, for example, forty million tons of waste to the landfill a year. You know, and at the end of a study, we'll have sorted, uh, you know, 
a, a thousand tons of that. So a pretty small sliver of it, but, but it is definitely a representative sliver. That's, that's the purpose is to get a sense of what the overall waste looks like by collecting these representative samples. Right. And we do, um, it on, we do it on recycling. I, mean, I keep saying waste, waste in the broad sense here. We do it on recycling. We do it on compost. We do it on construction debris. Um, we've looked through hazardous waste. We've done stormwater debris, you know, that we get out of catch basins and stormwater systems. So it's kind of a broad, a broad spectrum of waste there. Right. And, you know, we've had the fortune of working with you on a couple of those projects, the statewide study for California that you just mentioned. Uh, we just had a crew out in the field there. and. Um, also back in 2014 they do that study what every seven years or so calrissic historically i think they've attempted to be on a four-year schedule for that study uh it it's been a little variable because you know things happen um pandemics happen economic crashes happen which sort of delayed that study um that 2014 study should have been done a couple years earlier, but it was delayed. And then there's legislative things that come up too. So right now, as you noted, we're in the middle of the current one, but they just did their last one in 2018, but with SB 1383 and a lot of the, um, and was it 1826 and 341, you know, the, the whole alphabet soup of, of waste legislation in California right now, the, the, the legislative mandates and the, and the goals set in those legislation in that legislation um, depends on measuring the waste. And so they are kind of on a, a more um, advanced timeline here to get, get these current studies done so they can determine whether they're achieving their, their regulatory goals and, um, um, and you know, what, what comes out of the study drives whether they have to do more or less regulation to, to achieve those goals. Right. So one of the reasons why we do it is not just getting the information about missed opportunities or um, assessing, you know, how well these programs are running, but also for compliance reasons, right? Absolutely. And compliance, both, again, at the sort of state policy level, um, local policy levels, of course, a lot of local jurisdictions have their own legislative targets. But also, uh, you know, if you're thinking of someone like a business or the Pentagon, for example, on that project, it was, um, they were looking for lead points. Was it low energy efficiency designs? I forget what lead stands for. I should know that, but I don't off the top of my head. But um, Leadership were, and you know, energy they and for, environmental design, I believe. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> you know, yeah, they're looking for, um, they're looking for green, green credits in whatever way they can. So that's why a lot of businesses do it as well. Right. So um, some of those waste streams that that you discussed are, you know, obviously landfill-bound trash, recycling-bound materials, compostable organics or other organics that are going to digestion or other um, organics recycling programs. And then there's the special categories you mentioned, and I think that's worth diving just a little bit into. And... Uh, the wastewater sort I thought was pretty interesting. I got to work on that for a short amount of time. But yeah. yeah, you're collecting material out of storm drains and then sorting it to categorize what kind of um, baseline there was in terms of trash flowing into the San Francisco Bay. Yep, exactly. And we've done that um, both in the Bay Area and in other, other places in California. And that's exactly right. Basma Bay Area. Storm Water Management Association. Again, it's another acronym I should remember, but I don't. <laughs> um, who manages the water quality or, you know, is the water quality management district in, for the greater Bay Area. Um, 
did that last study that we worked on and, and it's exactly like you noted we were we were collecting samples of material out of the catch basins and the storm drains and um, daylighting it digging it out from way underground ringing it up and uh, sorting that material out into organic materials and, and waste materials so plastics metals you know all those kinds of things that, that we don't want flowing out into the bay and um and then yeah they were they were testing a piece of that was also testing different um, separation technologies to prevent those materials from flowing out so um, separators in the catch basins that would separate the organics and the, the water from the, the inorganic materials so there was a couple different pieces going on in that project and we've done it um, other places as well as i noted measuring for example the um, incidence and prevalence of expanded polystyrene styrofoam um, in the, the riverbed or the, the river outflows for other jurisdictions. Um, you know, again, with a, with a legislative eye, uh, the, the local jurisdiction was looking to um, have some data to back up their, their interest in, in banning um, styrofoam takeout containers. They really wanted to see, you know, it's very visible, but is there really all that much of it? And so th this was their way of going about doing that. That, that project involved, uh, at least partially involved, laying on my belly in the sand at the beach, marking off one-yard grids in the sand and uh, scooping a, a six-inch layer of sand out of that grid and, and sifting it to separate the, the little beads of styrofoam from the sand. It was, that was oh, definitely man, a job yeah. that involved headphones and, and podcasts. Oh, yeah. Beach characterizations are some of the most difficult or tedious that I've ever encountered because there's just, you know, this sand on everything. And, you know, how do and the you, sand uh, weighs a lot. I mean, part of that actually was we, we would bring the materials back and we had to, to wash them, to wash the sand off because you don't want to be weighing the sand. You only want to be weighing the styrofoam. And styrofoam is light. Sand is heavy. If you've got a lot of sand on your styrofoam, it's messing up your measurements. Right. Yeah. And then uh, I guess there's some other tools besides hand sorting and weighing, like, have you ever done uh, like a gas chromatograph type uh, thing where you have some really small residuals that are impossible to sort? So you have to send it to a lab to kind of get uh, burned and analyzed for the residuals. We do. We we don't. We aren't set up to do that ourselves. We are are right. very much still in the sort of the project management and and boots on the ground sample collection. But we definitely have worked on projects where we've sent uh, materials off to labs. Um, a lot of, um, yeah, destructive testing, you know, calorimity testing, um, um, heating values, yeah, um, asbestos testing, lead paint testing, kind of all of those things, yeah. But the labs handle that. We don't do it ourselves. Right, yeah. I, I had the fortune of working on one of those uh, studies looking at compost overs, like what was left over in the mm -hmm. compost uh, process. And so we were able to sort out the non-compostable forks and stuff, but we were looking for a residual compostable plastic and mm. uh, didn't actually find much. I think it was less than 1% in the, uh, in the um, manual sort. And then when we sent it off to the lab, uh, similar results, like the compostable plastic actually did seem to compost, but there was quite a bit of non-compostable plastic residue. Yeah, it's hard to tell those two apart. I think the biggest issue there is getting people to do the right thing on the front end. The humans, the humans are always the the uh, the monkey. Was it the wrench in the works? The monkey wrench in the works? What's the thing? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's not surprising, but uh, interesting stuff. So another question I have is, uh, you know, some of these studies, you're getting fresh trash and it's all pretty um, together and uniform and easy to sort. But, you know, there are other studies where the waste isn't uh, necessarily delivered in a timely manner. You mentioned the um, working on that wastewater study, I believe. Uh, those samples were maybe a year old because uh, it takes a while to collect, um, you know, a sample like that. So uh, can you talk about the challenges of sorting fresh versus old <laughs> materials? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a good question. So to a certain degree, a lot of that challenge we try to mitigate by being realistic with the, with the client up front about what, what's really possible here. Um, you know, you mentioned compost sorting, but even on the stormwater sorts, right? Like at a certain point, we can't distinguish between crushed glass and sand, right? Like it, it, it basically all looks the same and it all feels the same and there's no good way to sort it out. So, so just setting the expectation, um, that, w that we're not going to be able to distinguish again, the plastics is a really common one, especially on those compost studies or, uh, sorting the residuals, the the material from a re recycling facility, a MRF material recovery facility that gets thrown oh, yeah. away, um, and and the, you know there's little shredded pieces of plastic, and they, you know at that point we can't distinguish, we can't readily distinguish the number one plastics from the number two plastics, and so um, you know at, at that point we're really just sorting into plastic versus paper. Um, we could go oh. down the down the the path of sending those materials off to a lab. There are some some tests in the field that we can do using um handheld um spectrometers and things but the you know the for most of the the investigative purposes of our clients it, it's not super relevant always to know that again the number ones from the number twos it's good enough to just know that there's plastic there but man you know it's trash right like we could see anything and it could have been sitting there for for who knows how long and um you know we we actually have some funny photos i know we're <laughs> this is like total fail because we're talking and we're not looking at pictures, but we have some funny photos of uh, projects we did in um, Phoenix and it, you know, it was 118 degrees out and we're out um, um, at the, you know, a metal dumpster an enclosed metal dumpster. And we flip the lid, the plastic lid open and it tips down over the back of the dumpster. And just in the 45 minutes we were there, that lid melted. Like it, it turned into a Salvador Dali photo of just like black <laughs> plastic dripping down the back of this metal dumpster because it got so hot. And so you can imagine, yeah, the waste sitting inside of one of those dumpsters for a week, just baking in 118 degree weather. And it's just, you know, it's just sludge in the bottom at that point, basically. And, um, or samples that sit for a long time in a storm drain, storm drain catch basin, or, you know, some of the grosser ones are a grocery store compactor right so the material goes in there and then they smush it and smush it and smush it over and over and over for a week so they can maximize the amount of material in that compactor so it doesn't have to be picked up as often but you know when, when that comes to the landfill and opens that back door it's like a tidal wave of 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 soup and spaghetti noodles and shrimp heads that come like squirting out in a liquid then followed by all the paper and it's just it gets pretty gross it gets pretty gross out there right well, I mean, I guess the uh, question that I was kind of uh, leading toward was um, like sometimes you'll incorporate or you'll encounter materials that are composite materials, like a cup from a coffee shop will be mostly paper, but then it has a plastic 
liner on the inside. And I remember at that uh, wastewater sort, I was finding the, the plastic liner, but all of the uh, paper had degraded away. And so mm-hmm. it looked a lot like a jellyfish. Yeah. It's funny way I was at the beach yesterday and my five-year-old daughter was poking the jellyfish at the beach that were washed up. So it's a, a funny analogy. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, again, I think uh, you're setting the expectation with the client, like we're not going to be able to, well, we might be pretty sure that that's a, the liner from a paper cup. We're never certain. So, um, yeah, setting the expectation around, we're sorting this as a piece of plastic. It might've been a paper cup, might not have been, right. it could might have been, been a, a paper bowl. It's hard to say. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard yeah. to say. It's hard to say exactly what that is. The lesson there is: don't get cups with paper with plastic liners in them. Only use fully right. paper cups. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, there's the PFAS concern there too, but um, make sure that it's certified compostable from uh, BPI. And yeah. Yeah. Um, or use use so, less, um, use a reusable cup. Here's the even lesson: better. use a reusable yes. cup. Even better. <laughs> So um, going back to what you were saying about some of the conditions that you've had to work in, high heat, but man, I mean, I've experienced some extreme conditions working with you as well. Like you're at a, um, you're sometimes working on the open face of a landfill and it's, you know, high winds and um, just, you know, dusty and and you're collecting all this material that, uh, you know, you have to sort into all these categories. Uh, How do you, how do you manage some of these? extreme environments uh there's both the physical and the mental management of it and um (laughs) that's a good question Mm -hmm. and you know as you experienced you experienced recently i've heard the 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 high winds can be a real drag you know you're out on a landfill they're in canyons or on hilltops because that's often where they're built they're out in the central valley and the wind really comes whipping through there and um you try and do the best you can to block the wind is step one. Oftentimes a landfill can can drag over a big 40-yard roll-off container and, and you use that as a wind block. You can park your vehicles to create a wind block. Um, and then from there, you you know, uh, you know you try to get those light, fluffy things that tend to fly. You, you grab those as quick as you can and stuff them as far down in a barrel as you can. Um, sometimes we've we sort of doubled double basketed those things you'll grab a whole bunch put them in a basket and then set another basket on top of that one to keep them in the basket from flying away um you know you leave you leave sorting the heavy things to last the plastic i'm sorry not the plastic bottles the glass bottles the tin cans and that kind of stuff um you try to adjust your your work hours to avoid the wind although you can't obviously can't always do that because trucks come when they come and landfills open when they open um you know, it's more than just wind, you know, high heat wind, but we've worked. I mean, it's funny. Um, the rain. That, that Pentagon, yeah. the, well, the rain, the, the Pentagon study I was going to mention, it was a couple season study. And the first season was in February and it was six degrees in February when we were there and we were working outside. And, um, oh man, the best thing was when the Starbucks inside the Pentagon would bring down loads of, of coffee grounds you could just stick your warm. hands in the warm coffee <laughs> and just like just revel in the warmth for a minute of warm fingers because it was so cold. But then in the summertime, we also were there in August for that study, and it was it was 103 degrees and 100% humidity. It was the exact opposite. We were just waiting for someone to you know Starbucks to bring down a load of not Starbucks, but there was a, a Burger King or something inside there, and they would bring down cups full of ice 
from people's sodas. We're like, ah, oh, ice, and just do- pour that over our hands to cool our hands down. So um, th- this is the range of, of conditions. We've sorted in the snow. We've sorted in the rain. We try to bring tents out when we can. Um, but of course, the tents only work if it's not too windy, because when it gets too windy, it just blows your tent away. So the real the real luxury is getting to work indoors at a transfer station. That's that's when you know you hit the big times. Yeah, because yeah, being outside, being outside can be can be very challenging. And and on a mental level, you know, it's it's just it's tough. It's long days. I mean, we regularly work nine, ten hour days on our feet, pushing, pulling, lifting, twisting. You know, walking over uneven ground, getting wind blown and sun baked and um, super dusty, and um, and then and then you know when we're on the road, all you have to do to all you have to look forward to at the end of the day is going back to your your Motel Six and um, eating not so yummy. You know, fettuccine Alfredo and iceberg lettuce salad because that's the only vegetarian thing the restaurant has at the hotel <laughs> where you're staying. You're like, come on, people, can I have some color and some fr- actual fresh vegetables in my meal here? But um, you know, but then sometimes you really do win the jackpot and you do projects in Honolulu uh, or Kauai, right. and uh, at the end of the day, you might have been sorting garbage all day, but you finish the day off by going down to the beach and you just jump in the ocean, and. Uh, that that sort of makes it all better. Simple well, creatures. You know, We're simple creatures. Jumping in the ocean at the end of the day just makes it all better. I hear you. Or sometimes the hotel is a pool uh, and and good food. I remember working on a study down in LA, and there was lots of vegan options to choose yeah. from. So that was uh, kind of a, a bright spot on the. Yeah, uh, it's, def- it's definitely it's location dependent. The uh, my my. Um, my frame of reference for the fettuccine Alfredo and iceberg lettuce salad was just from an early project that stuck with me and just being out in a, you'd think New York city wouldn't be quite the, the food desert it is sometimes, but sometimes you get stuck in these spots in New York where you're just ages away from the subway and you know, you've been working all day and all you really want is to sit in your room and like your best option is fettuccine and iceberg lettuce. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess my question, I guess I was trying to get at, uh, you know, besides the mental and physical fortitude that your crew needs to do this kind of work is uh, like, what kind of protective equipment do you use? Mm-hmm. What, what uh, does that look like? Also a good question. Also a good question. A lot more in the last year. Um, we, there's kind of the standards. Everyone wears steel toed boots with a, um, um, just you know, keep your feet safe. Start there. Long pants, long shirt. Keep your legs and arms safe. Hard hats. Keep your head safe. Also, mostly to keep the bird poop off your head. Um, right. safe, safety vests. A lot of, of seagulls. <laughs> seagulls. Seagulls everywhere in the landfill. And then the uh, you know the the landfills all have their um, animal control program, so they come out uh-huh. every twenty minutes and launch off a little noisemaker to scare all the seagulls away, which really does just makes them fly up in the air. They all poop at once, and yeah. then they come back. <laughs> And, uh, well, so, sometimes they even have uh, falconers. I've met some falconers working landfills doing these things. The falconers are pretty sweet. The falconers are pretty sweet. That would be a good job. But um, you know what actually works uh, better than all of those things are just uh, having some roosters around. Seagulls <laughs> uh, hate roosters, apparently. I don't blame them. My neighbors have one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the roosters were very common in the landfills in Hawaii, but. Um, Back back to your PPE question, yeah. Right. So, hard hats, um, safety glasses, 
earplugs. Some folks choose to wear them. Some don't. I, I tend to wear them. I like them. Same. Um, dust masks. It used to be just simple dust masks, mostly just really just for keeping dust out. Over the last year, we've we've really switched over to using a more serious N95 mask um, because we're working we're working in groups. We're working around other people, so just trying to trying to be protective there. Um, double layer gloves. Typically, uh, usually we wear some sort of glove liner, and then over that, a more puncture resistant glove. Um, some of the some of the folks choose to wear face shields. Some people don't. Um, but the mandatory, basically, the mandatory things are boots, long pants, long shirt, hard hat, safety vest, glasses, mask, and gloves. Right. And yeah, go, I'm all about the, the ear protection as well, the uh, masks. I usually even wear a gaiter to cover my neck and, and mm. the mask. And I'll even, you know, put some essential oils like some rose on there or something that helps handle some of the, the smells and, and grossness. But uh, what do you guys do to handle some of the grossness besides all the PPE? Yeah, the smell. You know what? It's funny. It's a funny question. I don't even, my, I don't even notice it anymore. It, it, I think it's one of those things you definitely get used to. At first, you notice it a lot, um, and everyone has their own their own method for dealing with that. Some people like just you know the the menthol, kind of right on right on the dust mask, and you breathe through that. Um, some people choose to to go nothing. Some people do rose oil. Um, you know whatever whatever helps you get through the day on that one. Again, you you look for those loads of coffee grounds. They always smell great. <laughs> Working in the Central Valley, actually, we get, or Salinas too, in particular, we get lots and lots of loads of fresh vegetables, which is both like soul crushing, but they're so nice to sort, you know, just fresh vegetables. You're like, oh, fresh vegetables. I could sort carrots. I'm going to sort carrots from radishes, from kale all day long. I could do this all day. It'd be just fine. And then you realize, oh man, this is just one of these loads and they've gotten dozens of them today. It's like so much food is just straight to the landfill from the food manufacturers. But um, yeah, you, 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 uh, you catch a break wherever you can too, when you need to. Yeah. Well, before we move on to some of the big picture kind of learnings and, and lessons, uh, you know, what are some of the weirdest uh, or grossest things that you've had to come across? I know I've come across the, you know, everything from like almost mummified pets to, uh, you know, just the oddest, most random stuff. But, uh, you know, what, what about, you know, some of those things that you've encountered? Man, I knew you were going to ask this question and people ask it to me all the time and I never have a good answer. Um, it's all weird. I find it all weird and I find it all fascinating and, and whatever you can think of, it's been in the trash and we've probably seen it. I mean, it's just, it's all there eventually for me personally. I know this doesn't directly answer your question, but the grossest thing, the mummified cats, mm, meh. I mean, I find them sad, but I don't find them gross. Um, for me, the grossest thing is the bottles full of chewing tobacco spit. That just is like, every time I see one of those, I'm like, I just can't deal with it. I have to have someone else pick them up. I think they're the grossest things, and I, I don't know what it is. I mean, some people chew tobacco. I know it happens, but the bottles of the spit really gross me out. Um what other? I mean, we've seen all kinds of weird things. People occasionally find money. I actually have never found money, but it's always um, one of the first questions people ask: is, "How much money do you find?" Not a lot. The answer is not a lot. Um, 
Man, what else? With the, the the one time in all my years of doing this that I ever actually like rescued something from the landfill, which we're not really supposed to do, but uh, I asked permission in this particular case was a high school was clearing out a whole um, a whole locker room full of banks of lockers, and they were just bringing them to the landfill and throwing them away like hundreds and hundreds of lockers, metal, like perfectly good, well, for one, perfectly good metal lockers, and two, perfectly recyclable metal lockers, and they were just throwing them away. And it happened to be the last day of our project, and we were heading home after that, and we had space left in the trailer, and I, I put, I don't know, probably like 20 lockers in our trailer and hauled them home. And um, they're actually still all over our office in Seattle. Oh, people, a lot of people have them at their desk, stole their stuff at their desk. Um, yeah, I've scored some lockers myself. Yeah, right, right. What other kinds of weird, weird things? You know, hot tubs. I always find hot tubs weird. I don't know why, but uh, I think yeah. it's pretty neat. Boats, people bring in their boats. I swear the landfill people love it when they bring in boats and hot tubs because they love driving their equipment over them because they make the sure. most satisfying crunching noises. Um, I, I imagine. I mean, for me, the, the grossest stuff, uh, which I did encounter recently, um, I guess two two things. It's just PPE generally, especially in the context of mm -hmm. COVID, you know, mm -hmm. seeing how much of it and, you know, um, realizing that it's it's multiplied by however many uh, thousands. Uh, that was really sad, but also, you know, somewhat disturbing, um, both, you know, due to the unrecyclable or non-recyclable nature of it, as well as, um, you know, is it potentially COVID contaminated? Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, how much of that is, is hospital waste or from old folks homes. And and that stuff I found is the grossest. And mm -hmm. I, I dislike sorting, um, retirement home trash the most. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's up there. <laughs> it's definitely up there. Um, hospital waste, the retirement home waste, um, they're, 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 they're hard to sort because of all of the health risks, of course, associated with it. But again, like the mummified cats, it's also just gives you this sense of like, man, we're all, we're all getting old and, and this isn't all of our future. I, I don't know, kind of deep philosophy, but um, yeah, it, it, it does. It just being out there and you realize how much trash people are throwing away and you're like, man, what are we doing to ourselves and our planet and our lives? And, and then we're all going to, we're all going to end up in the same place. And all of this crap that we bought all throughout our lives is going to end up being totally worthless and hasn't, hasn't saved us from our fate in any way. <laughs> and instead just sort of distracted us from, from doing the things that are good for ourselves and the planet all, all through our lives. So, um, yeah, kind of got deep there for a second, but I agree. Oh, uh, you know, retirement homes, um, the, some of the, for sure, you always know when you get that load in from when, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, a pair of adults are cleaning out the home from their deceased parent, right? You, you just know the load comes right. in, you talk to the driver when they come into the landfill or transfer station and you ask them just a couple basic questions and then you see what's in there and you're like, you guys are going through something awful right now. And, and, um, well, I'm just going to let you go. Like, I, I can't, I don't want to step into this, step into totally. what you have going on in your life right now. So thank you and good luck. Well, on a more solutionary kind of, uh, tip, uh, one of our early guests, Gary Liss on this mm -hmm. podcast, uh, mentioned the need for reusable PPE and how that used to be a thing where, you know, hospitals would have smocks and laundering services 
Um, and you know, that we could even go back to that because, you know, it's not like COVID or many of these other diseases survive a washing process, especially using bleach or whatever. And, uh, you know, that could be a substantial savings because man, uh, hospitals, old folks, those are like the final frontier of uh, the zero waste movement. I feel that uh, there are, there are some potential solutions. Yeah, I, there are all kinds of things that we used to do reusable and we don't anymore. And it, you know, it doesn't, it's just, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me, really. It's like, why not? <laughs> why not? I watch feel those? like it's mostly People, economics, right? Yeah, you, it, it, I, I'm not, I, I would assume there, there must be some simplicity reason, right? Like just the, the time and effort involved in washing them and then refolding them and then keeping them sterile as you store them till you need them versus a, you know, a, a paper smock where they can just make it and then immediately throw it in a plastic bag and seal it off. But at what cost, right? Like we're just, we're just pushing those costs down the line somewhere. We're not really, we're not, we're not really making the world a better place by doing that. We might be making surgery safer though, which is a laudable goal. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know sure. all the ins and outs, but um, it sure seems like something like a smock, like a hospital smock, right? Like it easily be made out of recycled textiles too, because it's not like the doctor cares what color his smock is or her smock is or their smock is, right? So like, why not make it out of a mismatch of recycled textiles? But again, what do I know? I think they're I actually colored the, the way they are um, because staring at red for too long can um, tire out the cones in your eyes. And so they have them as blue so that your eyes can focus on something else and uh, still be able to differentiate the, uh, you know, contrast differences mm -hmm. when you're working in surgery. But I'm not sure about that. That's just something I heard at one point. Seems reasonable. Seems it seems you know blue is blue is not a color you would ever really find inside a body naturally either. So it's probably right. easy to distinguish between human or animal tissue and in, in your smock. But, you, know, you might be yeah. working on an ET in that case. <laughs> <laughs> so before we move on, I just want to go back and try to put another um, positive to uh, one of our past uh, topics there, and that's. Um, you know, the pets. And I did work on one study where I ended up at a animal hospital in Southern California. And while we were sampling the recycling, they had the um, uh, pet cremator guy come by and uh, someone from the animal hospital was transferring the frozen deceased pets to the, the cremator. And I thought it was a very respectful process. Like they were um, checking off the list and they would say the pet's name and then have like a little moment of silence and bow their heads in respect and then he would transfer it. So, you know, doing this kind of work, you get placed in all kinds of strange situations. I've, you know, been exposed to hundreds of different businesses and their uh, behind the scenes activity. And, and I've been surprised at, at some of the, uh, you know, behind the scenes stuff going on. It is it is definitely some of the interesting things that we, we get to see, like, yeah, some of the behind the scenes. We've, we've done some projects at airports and it's, it's, it's always kind of this neat little special thrill to go in the places of the airport where most people don't get to go or be out on the, be out on the airfield side of the terminal building and actually like being near a giant airplane as it's taxiing down the runway. You're like, Ooh, <laughs> this is kind of a neat experience. Um, so yeah, 
it's nice to hear that story about the uh, animal hospital. Kind of right. All right. Yeah. So um, let's move on and talk more about some of the big picture learnings from waste characterization. Like what, hmm. what are some of the trends? What are some of the things that we've learned through doing this kind of work? What makes it worthwhile? Uh, well, um, what are some of the learnings? Well, the, the learning is tonnage wise organics, 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 organics. Right. It's all organics. 30 like percent organics or more 30 30 yeah. 40 50 percent yeah totally uh, you know yeah depending on In where California, you are and what kind of down, programs right. are available right like you know often 30 plus percent of of what's in the trash can um could have been composted it's yard waste or it's food food waste or um those kinds of things so i mean that's the big one and that's you know where sb 1383 and ab 1826 which i think is the mandatory commercial recycling come in right like we got to get that stuff out of landfills. It doesn't belong there. I mean, re- reduce, reduce one, reuse, but next step, get it out of landfills. And, um, you know, the food rescue stuff that's going on that is so hot right now is um, also, you know, a really interesting question of how much of that, just how much food there is and, and how much of it, you know, it's just, it's just unnecessary it feels unnecessary like unnecessary waste it's always hard to know for sure when we're standing at the landfill why the food is there but so much of it just seems like um you know portion management and and chain of custody management things that no world is ever going to be perfect but it certainly seems like we're not even trying all that hard right now um i think one of the other takeaways is that you know with with concerted effort um and to 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 display sort of my maybe my bias is here some some legislative efforts like change can happen and it can happen quick and um you know thinking back to the city of seattle of course which is where i live now um you know the i think it was in 1989 or 1988 when they did one of their first waste characterization studies which cascadia did was obviously before my time but um you know, I think that was one of their takeaways is they looked and they were, they realized, oh my goodness, you know, 40% of our waste is, is yard waste. Like 40% of what we're sending to a landfill is yard waste. And within a year they passed a, you know, a yard waste collection program and gave everyone a bin and made people do it. And by, by 1992, like two years later, the yard waste went from 40% to like 7% of the waste. Right. And this and, is um, why we do this. Yeah. This is why we do this. You know, it's so easy. Just like give people the bin and tell them they have to do it. And 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 it happens. And of course, Seattle, Portland. You can you can name a dozen cities around the country where that works better than it does in other places. But it's not impossible. It's not impossible anywhere if we just if we just try, right? Like, just try. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Lane, Seattle. Well, of course, I'd like is, to say actually, it was probably Gary that uh, first started saying this. But uh, don't ban without a plan, right? So right. you can't just haphazardly start making laws that um, are supposed to improve your your performance here like you need to base that on some sort of data right like you went ahead and made a law to ban say um, plastic water bottles but it turned out that it was really just one uh, percent of your waste stream and really you know the single-use food packaging was a much larger percentage of, of plastic being found than that law would be um, you know, poorly informed and not very effective and whatnot. So 
Yeah. Um, and I mean, and you can't a, ban, ban without a market. I know it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well either, but you right. can't, you know, in the, in the case of yard waste um, or food waste in California, it's great to say that you can't put it in the trash anymore, but there's not enough infrastructure. Where are you going to take it? There's no infrastructure to take it somewhere else. And like, that's the big challenge is where's it going to go? There's not enough compost facilities or digesters or, right. or anything to handle the transfer of all that food from the waste into a different management pathway. So, well, that's another so reason do we're doing it? these studies, right? Is to see what kind of available feedstocks are, are in the landfill so that when laws like this are passed, then we know, you know, how many compost facilities need to get built and we can, you know, incentivize their construction or, or just um, guarantee uh, certain minimum uh, mm-hmm. deliveries each, each day. Yep. Yep, exactly. And that's actually, it's a focus of a, um, a Department of Energy, Bioenergy Technology Office, Funding Opportunity, something, I forget what FOA stands for, FOA, um, Funding Opportunity Announcement, I think. They're, they're, they're funding a uh, um, basically a nationwide study to create um, organics waste resource shed maps so that if you are a, nice. a I mean, it's it's geared towards creating biofuels and energy uh, waste energy program so it's not um i don't know i wouldn't i wouldn't put it very high up there in the, the waste management hierarchy but it is what it is but the, the data that i think that they're hoping to get out of it will be very interesting because in theoretically it allows you to say i am in um xyz region and what you know what what kind of feedstocks are available to me here within 50 miles of where i'm at and and um the whole goal of the program is to be able to 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 do that put a dot on a map draw a circle around it and get an estimate of what the the bio the, you know the organic feedstocks within that circle looks like so should be pretty cool nice. hopefully they hopefully they find someone to uh, fund for that and make the project happen all right so uh just in summary there one of the big picture learnings from waste characterization is the largest uh component or category of waste going to landfills is organics generally, and that could include yard waste or other um, material that was once alive. But the largest component of that is food waste. And of that component, there's a large percentage that was potentially edible or donatable. Yeah. Would, would that be correct? That that's that's absolutely right. And you know, when when we're talking largest, we're talking by weight, just to be clear. Again, you know, the, the right. food waste is very dense. So if you look at a pile of garbage, the food doesn't look like a lot. But then when you weigh that pile of garbage out, the food actually is a lot of it. It looks like a lot of plastic because the plastic takes up all the space, but it really doesn't weigh very much. Right. So by volume, we see a lot of, of plastic, but um, it's so lightweight that it doesn't yeah. actually. And, and so most of these studies are done with um, weight because you're... It's easier to get volume that way. You might do some where you're doing visual audits and, and just mm-hmm. estimating. But, we do um, some we do some volume. We do some counting too. Sometimes, um, you know, that's sort of a another cor- correlative factor that that people are mm-hmm. interested in. You know, how many how many times did this material type occur? We actually did a study recently um, looking at the incidence of various consumer brands in the waste. Yeah. So that, that was done by count, not by weight. So that's like a um, corporate origin study. Or yeah. And 
it was very, very, very interesting. Um, and the results were a hundred percent not what you think. And, um, you know, they're, they're not, they're not, they're not public yet. Um, so I, I have to be a little, little cagey, but, right. um, the, the, the findings, the findings were very interesting and, um, you know, going into it, we sort of had our notions about what we might find, but we were also really prepared you know, we actually did, we did a little, we just did some, some eyeballing of some trash around the office and in dumpsters around just to like think through how we were really going to pull this off. Cause this was the first time we'd, we'd done it on this sort of scale. And we were looking around and we were realizing like, man, there's a lot of things that don't have a, a brand on them. Right. Like, um, so, so, so there's that, like, you know, a lot of things just don't have a brand. And then the second question is what, what is the brand, right? Like if we have a, a, um, a cardboard box and it has just to pick someone randomly out of the air, like let's right say on. this cardboard box says Amazon on it, just for example, right? Okay. Like is Amazon the brand or is the company that made the cardboard box the brand? And so how do you, you just have to set up those rules going in so that you're consistent about the sorting. And um, so we said to think through a bunch of that stuff, but yeah, the, the results were very interesting. There was no, there was no, there was no clear cut answer for any of the material types we did it on. We did it on 21 different material types. Um, so some kinds of paper, some kinds of plastic, some kinds of metals. Um, and there, there was no clear cut, clear cut answer to what the most prevalent brand was. And the data was, was actually really easy to skew um, and we saw this on a couple examples because you'll end up with um, a commercial business, for example, that, you know, for whatever reason, throws out a huge stack of something that has their logo all over it, right? Like letterhead or business cards right. or, right. Um, you know, the bags they use to hold their merchandise in that someone spilled their Dr. Pepper all over. So now they can't use them. So they have to throw them out. But so now all of a sudden you have a thousand, a thousand sheets of letterhead. And like, oh, great. Now I've got a thousand, a thousand count of this item. And it shows up as the most prevalent brand. But you're like, let's be real. Cascadia Consulting Group's thousand pieces of letterhead is really not the most prevalent thing in the waste overall. This is just the issue with random sampling. And like, you get these outliers and how do you deal with them? So, so it was, was very this, interesting. When that, um, related when that becomes, to the... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I was go. you go ahead. Okay. Um... Was this related to the Greenpeace study? I know they recently did a, a corporate origin study that found Coca-Cola as being the most prevalent. But it sounds like it may be different. It, we did not do it for Greenpeace. Nope, it was for a different client. Um, and we we went in thinking that something like Coca-Cola or Amazon or Pepsi or one of those things would be the most prevalent. And it, that, that was absolutely not the case. <laughs> um, well, you know, and, that could be due to study design, like you were saying. I'm thinking in the near future, um, there's probably going to be cameras at some of these waste processing facilities, MRFs, material recovery facilities, recycling centers. And these cameras could have um, AIs or computer vision that mm -hmm. could actually, in real time, uh, take counts of, of corporate origin um, of, of material, of the corporate yep. origin of materials, as well as, you know, estimate... Uh, you know, the percentage of their, their flows. Absolutely. And, and it's already happening. There are already companies out right. there, as you know, AI, you know, um, the cameras are already there and they're already using those to sort materials, right? So 
um, picking the plastics and putting them in the plastic bin or picking the metals and putting them in the metals bin. That's really what the cameras are being used for most right. thus far. I know, I developed one and had that working for a short time before the supplier went bankrupt. Yeah, but, but but there's no reason it also couldn't be used to track track the brand, right? Um, and there's there's right. other apps out there like Literati, um, and there's some other yes. sort of litter litter use litter apps and um, doing a similar thing. And um, the just from a, a pure study design standpoint, the the Literati ones are they work great. Um, the the question of representativeness sort of comes up, right? Like you've got a self selected right. group of people. Um, and and going on sort of self-selected routes where they know they're going to find litter, and really, of course, that you know that's litter. It's not all waste, so um, you know it's not not surprising to find that cigarette butts are a huge chunk of litter, right? But like, when in terms of like all garbage, it's not a very big piece of all the garbage. So there's some things there. But yeah, the, at a Murph, just tracking brands as it goes by on the conveyor belt would be super interesting, and yeah, it, it's really interesting and. Um, Thinking through, we've we've been in discussion with folks too about how do we incorporate that into what we're doing, right? Like, man, if I could get a bunch of robots um, out to sort garbage instead of a couple, you know, instead of having six people, I have three robots that just run twenty four hours a day, right? Like that would be way better. Easier um, said than done, my friend. But I know exactly. But easier said than done, and so that's that's why I wanted to mention it, right? Like. Um, I think there's high hopes for those systems and people are trying it out. But, but in reality, so much of that sorting relies on context and, and sort of like um, non, non-obvious, non-tangible data to, to decide where something goes and the robots and the AI just aren't there yet. Right. Like um, um, I'm trying to think of an example of something where we have like single, single use food packaging, right? Like um, it's a perfect example you pick you pick you're standing in a pile of garbage and you pick it up it's really easy for a robot to tell you that's paper it might even be able to tell you that it's a paper clamshell but it doesn't know if that's a paper clamshell that held food or a paper clamshell that held a set of earbuds right and so it's hard to know if it's food service packaging versus some other consumer goods packaging. And that's something that only a human can do with the context of reading the label. And, and, and even if you read the label, knowing, knowing what gap is versus McDonald's, right? Like and that, you know, an AI obviously could learn that pretty easy, but so that's not the greatest example, but you, you start going down these paths and you're like, Oh, you know, a robot can't do that. Or um, right. a lot of times with the food, right. We're trying to sort um, potentially donatable food from not donatable food. The AI can't one, it can't distinguish. And then two, it can't actually pick those things up. It doesn't right. have the manual dexterity to separate, you know, to dump a bunch of Cheetos out of a Cheeto bag. Like you can't do that the way a person can. So, so it, it, you know, we're all going to be replaced with robots eventually, but in the waste world, I think we're still a little bit of ways away from that, <laughs> but they're, they're <laughs> making good agree. strides. They're making good strides. Yeah. Uh-huh. So uh, let's go back. I, I think that was a nice aside, but um, I want to talk more about food waste and mention a study that I didn't participate in, but read about that I think was uh, quite uh, interesting. And that was the U.S. Army doing a food waste study. They were realizing yes. that, you know, they had a, a large amount of food waste in their mess halls. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. Lots. And so much. Lots. So I much. Know. And it's so gross. But what they did was, um, you know, they included not only the waste characterization, but they did interviews with their uh, 
their guys and gals and everybody and uh and and try to get some information about why they were wasting the food right so i guess they had someone surveying people at the um place where you would bust your mm-hmm. your stuff and um some of the things that they learned was that uh, the soldiers didn't like kale <laughs> so there was, no one was eating the kale um but also that the food would get cold and they would uh, it would be less appetizing so what the army did was they switched to having everyone eat at once and having trays out there for you know half an hour or more and uh, they would just break groups into uh, or break, you know break people in smaller groups and then bring out fresh hot food more frequently for each group so um there was let food wouldn't get cold by the time the last person got through the line mm-hmm. and they actually saw a big decrease in the amount of food waste that was that was happening and it's amazing how simple some of those solutions are and no one thinks about it right like like why 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 did it t- how long has the army been serving people food and it took them until <laughs> 2020 to figure that out uh, no mean, i read about this study like 10 years ago but yeah but yeah it took them until 2010 maybe, to figure that out five, like come on yeah I know. Um, yeah, and it, you know, I think it's a, it's common in all kinds of sort of um, mass feeding settings like that. That just how much produce there is. We've we've done characterizations at prisons, and um, yeah, man, the amount of food that gets wasted. And I don't know what the solution is because prisons have a whole whole other unique set of of you know metrics and targets and man- management protocols they have to jump through to to get people fed, but. It just feels so wasteful. It's so wasteful. Especially when it's an animal um, or meat-based product. I just find that so tragic. Um, yeah. Because it's like it was inefficient to start with, and then you're going to waste it. You're just going to throw it out. Right. Although I would guess the, I would guess the meat doesn't get wasted nearly as often as the kale. Right. It depends uh, <laughs> on the group. You know, I, I know people that have had to go to prison, and they were vegans, and they, they really didn't get uh, an adequate kind of... Uh, diet given to them so maybe switching to a vegan menu might help um i know that definitely would be more efficient environmentally speaking but you know that's uh that's something that you kind of need the data to to get through Mm -hmm. so and that's really anyway uh, we're running out of time here and i think this is a great talk maybe we'll have you uh back for another um uh, episode in the future, but I want to respect your time and, and wrap up here on time. So my last question for you is what was your, um, first trash memory? Uh, uh, that's a good question. So my first, my, probably my very first trash memories, I actually remember, um, being a little kid and I have a, a younger, I have an older brother. I'm a middle child, but I also have a younger brother who was only a, just a little less than two years younger than me. And it was our job to take the trash out. And um, I don't know why, I don't know why we did this or how we even got started on it, but he and I would pick up, pick up the garbage can and turn it on its side. And I don't know how the trash didn't come spilling out of it all over the place. It must've had some sort of lid. And then we would, um, we would take it out, but we would, we would carry it like it was a stretcher between us and we would go trash truck, trash truck. Woo, woo, woo. Like we were a trash <laughs> ambulance scaring the trash out to the trash can. Um, bring out your trash. Totally bring out your trash. And, uh, yeah, we would do that as little kids, trash truck, trash truck, woo, 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 and take the trash out. 
Nice. Yeah, that's my first trash memory. My first oh, project memory at Cascadia, though, was working night shifts in New York City. That was the, the very first thing I did when I started at Cascadia, 2004. And they didn't they didn't warn us we were working night shifts until we showed up. We got there at like oh. 6 p.m. on a Saturday, and they're like, all right, let's meet back down here in four hours. We're going to go over the plan for tonight. And we all looked at each other. We're like, wait, what? We're working tonight? No, no one told us that. <laughs> so we all did like a stuffed down dinner and did a three-hour power nap and then showed back up for our night shift which is very entertaining in New York City, if you can imagine. I can imagine. All right. Well, um, mm-hmm. thank you again for joining us. And uh, that was a great talk. Very uh, informative. I'm sure our listeners will um, either have their stomachs turned or um, at least be uh, turned on to what's in the trash. Yeah. So Next time um, you're throwing really something away, it. just remember someone might be sorting it. So think twice about it. Right. And uh, try to recycle and compost and uh, avoid waste if you can. So um, one last request, uh, you know, maybe you could provide me some links um, offline here to some studies that that you've done, or um, I'll do uh, some research myself and find some good links and we can put them in the show notes for people that want to learn more about what's in the trash. Absolutely. Can do. Great. Well, have a great day. and. Thanks for coming on Trash Talk. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Michael. I'd love to do it again.